Telling you, bro, what's been happening, bro? Uh, not too much. Still hitting more Peggyos. Hey everybody, welcome back to Riff Raff, coronavirus edition number two. Seriously, I hope everybody is staying healthy, has stayed healthy. It's been interesting to uh, see how this has all played out since the last episode of Riff Raff with Greg V. The whole thing had just started happening, but uh, wow, I hope everybody is okay. My guest today, Mr. Alan Hines. Alan is a fantastic guitar player, teacher, performer, sideman. Met him years and years ago when I was a student at MI in Hollywood, California. Now, Alan's still there teaching to this day, but he's branched out, had a successful career as a sideman, and uh, as of, he says, as of late, maybe 10 years or so, a solo artist. So we're listening to one of his songs now called Falling Up. If I may deviate for a second with a crazy analogy that, trust me, goes somewhere, you know, those of you that know anything about cooking, uh, South Louisiana, New Orleans cuisine, there's the base of a lot of dishes. It's known as the Holy Trinity. It's like a Catholic reference, but um, Holy Trinity is bell pepper, celery, onion. You have those three things, you're in good shape. You can make a lot of great classic dishes. And um, in a weird way, I, I always, make food analogies to, to music, but uh, Alan's playing exemplifies, it reminds me of that in a certain way, but his are the three T's of guitar playing, tone, taste, and touch, and he has all of these in spades as you hear, got a beautiful touch, legato sound. So uh, in, yeah, in this interview we talk about a lot of things, Alan's played with Gino Vanelli. B.B. C.C. Wyans, uh, Randy Crawford, lots of other people, but I think he will agree that the most rewarding thing for him has been his own solo career, which we'll talk about. He's got a new record called The Good Fight. By the time this episode is out, I don't think the record will be out, but the mixes should be done because he was mixing. So look out for it, The Good Fight. I know he's on Facebook a lot right now on um, doing Skype lessons. Hit him up for a Skype lesson, Alan Hines. Great teacher. I think you get a lot from a lesson with Alan right now. And what do we have but free time right now anyway? Uh, look me up on Instagram and um, Shane Terrio Guitar on Facebook. On an unusually rainy day, I went over to Alan's house in beautiful Laurel Canyon, Los Angeles. 
and we just sat and filled with guitars and amplifiers and cats. <laughs> and so we, uh, we sit down and play a little bit as we usually do and talk shop. I hope you'll enjoy this. Check out Alan's new record. It should be out fairly soon. It's called The Good Fight. The Good Fight. Thanks for listening.
Get. <laughs> Some coronavirus licks. Cool, man. Yeah. I'd make a good supporting act for you, man. You sound great. Man. I'm sitting here in beautiful Laurel Canyon. It is a nice man, day. It is like surreal here, Alan, with my buddy Alan Hines and his. Wow, this is, I mean, if, if it's the a listeners great place, could see it? this, it's really special. I lucked yeah. up a long time ago. Why do I have headphones on? I was wondering why I couldn't hear anything. I was testing the... Uh, Alan, can you speak closer to the yeah. mic? Anyway, uh, yeah, beautiful yeah, yeah, spot, man. Here, you know, it was years ago after the earthquake in 94, and I was going to move to Atlanta, actually. I was going to get a job working at AIM. Oh, yeah. That was the idea, anyway. Okay. I was kind of freaked out because I was living in, near the epicenter in the valley. And then somebody said, well, you know, the hills don't move as much up in the hills. So I went looking for <laughs> just a little place, and I found this. Um, my landlady was... Um, she um, she had this little, at the time it was just a studio apartment, so it was really small. And she did a real thorough screen because she owns a lot of properties in Hollywood. And she was, boy, talk about riffraff. She had had some like strange, you know, crazy people move in and, you know, yeah. board up all the windows and shit. So she did a big check on me and um, she liked me. And I moved right. in and um, I've been spending the same rent since 1994 she likes me because i you know i pay my rent on time well i can't get it so low of so, wow well so i mean that, this this neighborhood for those listening i mean i know a little bit about it i mean it, this is like history man frank zappa lived true. around the corner um i mean who, <laughs> the wonderland I, murders yeah, yeah the I mean, wonderland murders history. down the no, street but everybody, a lot of people live up here still yeah. um <clears throat> i see celebrities all the time mm-hmm. bottom also has a house up here someplace mm-hmm. if you've wow. ever heard of him yeah 
Um, killer. Joni Mitchell lived pretty close to the house. I guess our house was written for the. Um, she and Graham Nash were living together. Like right when you came, you come here on the Hollywood side or the Valley side. If you came the up through the side, Hollywood the side, side, you would have driven right yeah, past their house. And it's a beautiful, shops. Yeah. nice greenhouse set up and back up on the hills. I mean, um, you probably find a good deal on a place up here, man. I imagine it's not too expensive. You still can, actually. I mean, <laughs> you, you can still. You, um, because there are actually there are a lot of the houses up here. It's the land that's so good. There's a there's a lot of houses that were built really kind of cheaply back then. Because yeah. I have a girlfriend who's looking for a house up here, and she actually found one for like really cheap. Wow. But the house itself is crap. Yeah, you need to rebuild kind of the together. whole thing. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Like a geodesic dome back in the 70s, you know. But right. the land is like awesome. Yeah, it's beautiful up here, and it, it's always about 10 degrees cooler than the rest of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and there's a little, I have a little creek outside that's always running year-round. There are natural springs up here in the hills, mm-hmm. which I didn't know about until I moved up here. Great place to create, man. Looks like it works for you. You know, I, I just want to tell the uh, listeners, I usually do a little context backstory. Alan, when, I went to MI back, you know, years and years ago. And I, you're still teaching there. I, I I took a couple of open counseling with with you, man. You must have been really, really young at the time. I, I never had a class. No, I'm just with really you. old now. No, but no. well, what happened was I was um, like that. I went in '85 and '86. And there, yeah. you know, the school's full of great players, and yeah, uh, Jeff was... Buckley was there, and Jimmy Herring, um, and you know, we were all trying to be at the time. Everybody was trying to be uh, Larry Carlton or Joe Pass. You know, those mm-hmm. or Robin Ford. That was shredding wasn't really in yet it wasn't really that scene yet it was mostly like the early robin ford and it was a great environment mac the school was only a year long was it a year long when you were there was yeah, that the was year, year program and but it was intense the best thing man. about that was being able to go sit with somebody you liked Absolutely. and play with them that was the coolest you thing. and scott and you know dan gilbert was my private well, team when i was there before i'd go down the hallway and be like joe pass and wow. jeff berlin and scott henderson and frank and bali and uh jennifer batten was always there joe diorio was awesome and when Robin was there, when I was there, Robin Ford was there one week out of every month, wow. the whole year I was there. So that whole, I would just take off from all my other classes and sit with him. Because I knew all his solos. I transcribed all his stuff from, from Joni Mitchell to Little Feet when he played on one Little Feet mm-hmm. record. And I mean, I knew all his licks. And so I used to sit there with him and just play. And we would, we would he, we, he would surprise me. He plays really great over chord changes. I wish he did that more. That's, that was my favorite thing he did. You know, mm. The early Yellow Jacket stuff was not, it was pretty heady stuff. Yeah. For a predominantly what we all thought was a blues guitar player, but he, uh, yeah, he was awesome, and he was interesting because when Robin would play, he would look at a song like you know Anna Maria or something that has like tons of really yeah. hard changes in it, uh, which is a Wayne Shorter song. Wayne Shorter, Anna Maria. And he'd look at it, and I think he he was just kind of looking for those pivot chords where the where the tonality would shift or where the five chord would go into a new key, and then he'd take his eyes completely off the chart, and then he'd just start playing. So it gave it freed him up to where, and I think that's why he should always connect with everybody so well because it's. He's really coming from the heart and not from the head when he plays, you know. And I just noticed that about him when he played over chord changes because he always has a real fluid approach over him. Um, you know, it doesn't sound like, he, like he's going into melodic minor mm-hmm. scale when it hits. It sounds like he's just flowing from his blues ideas over the tops of the changes. And that's what I really miss about his playing. I wish he did more of that because that was really special. Mm-hmm. You know, the Yellow Jacket stuff. Um, there's a Klaus Ogerman record where he plays really mm-hmm. great on an old Oh, record. I know those records. Yeah, he did a couple with Michael Brecker and... Uh... Klaus Ogerman. So Robin was there. I mean, that was like the heyday, Howard Roberts. That was like the heyday. And uh, I got hired. Guys. Actually, Tommy Tedesco hired me to teach at MI afterwards. Oh, wow. I was going to ask you how you got the gig. Yeah, it, they used to have these um, uh, suggestion meetings or grievance meetings, whatever. At the end of every quarter, they had all the students sit together and, and voice their 
you know, concerns and how they could improve the school or whatever. That's my cat, Boo. Boo. And um, so somebody raised their hand and said, Alan Hines should be teaching here. And, and so Tommy Tesco said, who's this Alan Hines? And so I stood up and he gave me a job the next day. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, I, you started off doing the grunt work, you know, doing like private lessons all day long. Uh, which was, but then, they, then I, when I started working outside of school, then I became kind of like a visiting faculty and they couldn't give me steady hours. So I'd just go in there and like sit in a big room and, and show off. Um, like I do now at the school. Well, I still have. A, I showed you what you were in. Uh, Alan's sister lives in New Orleans, so I have a house in New Orleans, and Alan came over a month or so ago. Yeah, what a beautiful house that is. And Speaking thank you, man. And um, you just and, need to move it up here. To... I, I wish I could. <laughs> yeah, and you're. And anyway, you came into my studio, and I showed you a uh, a handout from your your uh, open counseling workshop from God knows when that was, yeah. and it had some great stuff on it. Uh. Um, well, I was really um, and all that. I still work on some of that stuff. You sometimes. know, it's weird because everybody else, everybody else asked me about my legato technique, and that was kind of the beginning of that. And really, I was just trying to—I was trying to emulate Holdsworth, the best I could. You know, and nobody can, nobody really could. I mean, he was just so harmonically deep, and I could never understand the harmonic part of it. But there's just so much beauty in his fast um, flurries yeah. of notes that became like big walls of sound. You know, that I thought that was always the most the attractive thing. Sound, and he was yeah. really. He never got enough credit for being as melodic. I don't think because the early Tony Williams stuff and some of his early records. I mean, he could he just played in uh, Jean Luc Ponty stuff. Yeah, he played some beautiful melodies. Just the slow stuff, you know. You you hear everybody else frantically trying to play over the changes, and you come time for his solo. When there's there's one song in the Jean Luc Ponty album where they're trading trading fours. I know what you're talking. There's like four or five. There's yeah. a keyboard. There's another guitar player. I think it's Daryl Sturmer. Daryl Sturmer. Yeah. Yeah. Steve and, Smith and Jean Luc Ponty. And they're all great, but you know when Holdsworth gets there, it's just like whoa. Oh, it's another world. It's man. another level. Yeah. He was even when you look at the old clips of Holdsworth, like with um, what was that band he was in in, in uh, Soft Machine or UK or Soft Machine mm. or was it Gong? There's some stuff Gong, early right, yeah. on YouTube where he's playing like an S. G. A white Marshall SG? with not a drip of reverb, like completely right, yeah. unforgiving sound and killing it, man. Like no, you know, no, yeah. no two delays. Going He's really on special. I've, I believe me. I've had so many students come to me and say, you know, because I can kind of do a legato thing, and I, you know, I might luck up and whatever. They, they, but they always like they always go there with me. Um, maybe because my name is Alan. That happened in the store a few times. Somebody, somebody who was visiting the store heard somebody else in the store call me, "Hey, Alan." And they said, oh, man, I love all your stuff. And then I realized they were talking about Alan Holdsworth. Well, you're, uh, <laughs> you're, yours is, uh, Alan Holdsworth was what, A-L-L-A-N, and yours That's is right. E-N, right? E-N, yeah, yeah. Still, anyways, still but anyway, so students always, like, um, ask me about this stuff. Or when they ask me, or when we bring up Holdsworth, they all say, yeah, but his stuff was way so outside. And so I couldn't really get any, any of it. And then I put on one of their old recordings, like uh, the stuff from uh, Heavy uh, Metal Fatigue. Yeah. Some of that shit is like... It's just beautiful. It's just, it's just um, well when you when you listen to like because um, I was a big Van Halen fan and you know Eddie was a big fan sure. of Alan and actually he got him his record deal Warner Brothers and was supposed to produce that record. Oh, I didn't. Know. I knew that there was a connection there. With Warner he was Brothers, supposed to produce it. That was the deal. But Van Halen was so busy at the time that um, he couldn't commit to a certain date, and Alan supposedly got he got frustrated, so he just did the record himself. But if you listen to like. Um, there's a Van Halen tune called uh, "Top Jimmy" and "Drop Dead Legs." The ending solo is total Holdsworth. The yeah, whammy sure. that like the whole the it's real totally widespread inspired, intervals yeah. on the single string. All and this stuff kind of you know? like sure. You we know, have like that, repeating notes yeah. and notes that go down the in sequence instead of up. Diminished thing, but but yeah. uh, he was a big influence. Yeah, and you know, and back when we were trying to figure stuff out, we didn't have the amazing slower down or any kind of software to help. So half half of the well, 
half of the fun was just a journey, you know, trying to figure out, you know, slowing down a record to like uh, 16 and a half or whatever a record, a record turntable would turn down to and trying to figure out the notes. So half the notes were wrong and probably played in a different place, but that you, you kind of got your own thing. You know, you'd come as close as you could, but you could never get it exactly right. And I think it's one, I still tell my students now when they're transcribing anything, you know, don't go to YouTube and get somebody to show how you, show you how to do it. Use your ear because that's, mm -hmm. that's where you kind of learn Mm -hmm. That's where you really learn that you know it's, it's like I think the difference between watching a movie and reading a book, you know you have to use your imagination so much more if you're having to really figure out mm -hmm. where on the fretboard you can even finger the damn thing. Well, so, one, I remember on your your handout I was talking about the worksheet you, you talked about transcribing. Did, did you spend a lot of still, time transcribing? Yeah, I think we all did. You know, I mean, I was first. You know, Scott Henderson got me into that like he had. So that, we just assumed that was the thing to do. So yeah, and I have I still have like a lot of uh, notebooks here full of like. Schofield, Michael Brecker. Mm -hmm. I found learning, you know, saxophone licks was really this fun for guitar. What was the? Do you remember the Dave Sanborn lick that you had on that handout? Probably so, because I only play. I only have about four or five licks. Um, <laughs> but no, there's one. Um, uh, was it like this? Is a blues lick, right? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I thought it was. Like, oh, that's cool too. Oh, that's cool. I don't think that was it. There's one, there's cool. an altar lick that I used to play, a diminished lick I still use all the time because it flows really nice on the guitar. And that's a... Oh, nice. Like over... Is that Michael Brecker? Brecker. Brecker. Like, Brecker like, yeah. Which is nice. But yeah, on guitar, you can get this going on. Uh, if I can... I'm not really quite warmed up. You can just kind of like hammer on something yeah. to make it work. Uh, Um, yeah, and so, uh, yeah, we were all stealing stuff, and I was, you know, taking the road of least resistance. Uh, I kind of figured out that if I was uh, hammering on when ascending and pulling off when descending, it kind of sounded like Holdsworth. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my approach. Where I, and plus, I, I could never, I, I held my pick really like that with uh, three fingers and mm -hmm. hold it sideways, so I can't do a hybrid thing at all. Um, and my single string picking has always sucked, has always, you know, whenever I try to go, it's like really hard for me to do. Or, uh, yeah. And I could do it, I could, but I could go, yeah. You know, by, by hammering on. It's a real fluid sound. I remember even back in the day at MI, I remember you had that strat with the Floyd Rose on it, the old strat. And you, yeah, I was in a Floyd Rose. That was the first, that was even before Floyd Rose, I think it was like, called the Rockinger. Oh, wow. And I ordered it from Guitar Player Magazine and I had two big screws that went right through the headstock. Oh, <laughs> devaluation there. No rally. They had just they're cranking it on there. Didn't realize that, you know, if you force, I've learned since then, you know, forcing the screw without drilling the hole first. You can crack the whole headstock apart because yeah. maple's so hard, you know. But you don't want to practice that shit on a '65 strap. Yeah, but who knew at the time? Um, yeah, well. But I remember the. I remember watching your right hand. How it was just so fluid, you know. You know. Yeah. And, and even now, yeah, I'm, I'm watching it. So. Well, I didn't. I wasn't quite warmed up in our first little jam there, so I played some oh, goofy stuff. Come on, man. But, um, it's, it's not goofy. Though. The goofier, the better. My hand, my, I have a really light, I, mean, I haven't broken a string like in 40 years. Or wow. I, you know, my right hand is really super light, and I actually don't pick a lot of times. I do that a lot. Mm -hmm. Where I'm just kind of, uh, and 
they kind of rely on the amp for the volume. But the, the dynamically, there's, it seems like there's more of a, mm -hmm. of, of a open window there for mm -hmm. dynamics when you do the legato thing. Much all the way up all the time all the way up i can actually so your hands the, are controlling the on my um, um i play my esquire a lot my 52 esquire mm -hmm. and I, it has a bypass position on it you know it bypasses all the tone and it's just like wide open i use that all the time it's control everything i i became a volume pedal slave you know back in the larry carlton robin ford days because mm -hmm. everybody was using that yeah for that kind of stuff drive sound men crazy by the way Again? It drives sound men crazy. Like, <laughs> and studio stuff. Like, uh, yeah, I know. I've done those sessions before where it's like halfway on. They go, Alan, your volume is yeah. changing. What happened to the level? It just jumped. <laughs> I know. Believe me, I know. Yeah. It's a cool sound, though. Yeah. It's... So, where, well, yeah. how did you get from? Um, so you were at the school, and then you've, you're still at the school, but you've, you've been able to dip one toe in, into real-world guitar playing. I mean, working cat, like, you know, some of the gigs you've had, like Gino well, Vanelli comes to mind. And I used to never really want to be... I, I got the gig just because I needed the, needed yeah, the money. We were right. all, like, you know, just kind of starving in Hollywood and looking for anything, and teaching at MI was a great way to make extra money. Are you kidding me? It was a prestigious school, and it was... Um, I wasn't really in the... I wasn't even trying to analyze what I was doing I mean I really don't know if I had that much to really show anybody I was just kind of showing off and I you know I I guess I played for 10 years with commercial bands in Alabama so I kind of had a, a idea of how to play a lot of different styles and I played in bands while my rhythm playing was pretty good so and that got better of course playing with a lot of R&B artists after school but as time went on I mean I realized how much fun it is to teach when you get the right student when you get somebody who's really growing and listening and 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 getting and, and knowing that what you offer them has made a big change in their life made them a better player that's really a great feeling i mean it really it's it goes really unrewarded a lot of times but it really feels um in as it reflects in my pay at the school <laughs> different story but no i mean it's it, i've had so many students you know i had a lot of great students you were there and you i didn't but you know you were like a toshi yanagi or justin Derek and those guys, I mean, they were already good when they got there. I mean, you were you would have been a good player whether you had gone to MI or not. I think it was just you kind of went there and got what you wanted out of it. So I didn't... Well, I, I didn't... I mean, I was 19 when I was there. It was so... You know, it was... A, 
It yeah, it's kind of a magical place back then, wasn't it? It, it was really like, was. We had kind of all read about it. It was like this mecca out in California of all yep. the best guitar players. There was, wasn't anything like it around. It really was a great, man, it was a, it was one of the best years of my life, honestly. It was such a great time. Me I too. Mean, I just went through a lot of shit there. and Like, I kind of grew up in that year, a year, couple of years I spent in Hollywood. I mean, it was like... I think we all do, you know. Like everything. When you actually end up sitting next to the people, you know, sitting next to somebody like Robin yeah. Ford, who you just idolize and who's done so much in the world of guitar i mean you soak it up you know and you and you know you were but you have enough talent where you took that stuff and ran with it and made it your own i mean a lot of guys just kind of go there and don't you know they weren't really meant to be or they never really took it that seriously you know they kind of a hobby and they kind of learned a few things went back home and mm-hmm. got a job at their wherever they were supposed well, to be. well my roommate at. at the time man he Who's that? I hope he never listens to this. Uh, Who? I'd rather not say his name. Oh. I don't think he ever even showed up for any of your classes. But he would basically, uh, the you know, the first week we we all moved in together, we're all hanging, and I made friends. And these French guys, we were playing standard stuff. And he was, he had this these covers of Rush tunes and Boston tunes that he had. Nothing wrong with any of that, but he basically did it on his four track, note for note, copped all the solos. And he played it for me. I go, wow, that's great. And he was still working on the same shit a year later. And he like he he just missed all his classes. He like barely made it through. Yeah, and I've I'm seen like, all kinds. Just I mean, I've wasted seen, like. I there's a lot of people who do that. That there's a lot of guys who are guys who are really sense or really uh, so insecure to the point that they make up excuses for everything for not learning stuff. I mean, there's all sorts. It's like a psych. It's you know, it's like being a psychologist there at school. You know, trying to. But that's kind of the magic of it. Is trying to bring that 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 part out of a kid's personality. I've seen this one Japanese guy named Joichiro Natori. And he's, he works for Yamaha now in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. But he was the shyest, this little effeminate guy who'd sit in the corner of my room and just like sit there and he was really super nice, real quiet, really shy. And he just blossomed into such a great... And then mm-hmm. he, like towards the end of the second year, he started playing some shows. I was going, Joey, that's awesome. His, his time was great. His mm-hmm. touch was great. And now he's like, um, he transcribes for Yamaha. He has his, mm-hmm. his perfect pitch. He, we stay in touch, but he that was really one of my uh, highlights of teaching is like seeing somebody like him kind of grab it and run with it, you know. And that's that's it's really that's super rewarding when you when you can make a difference some a difference in somebody's life and uh, think that you might have had something to do with that, you know. That you might absolutely, have given them something. It it's a good. very powerful thing, man. Yeah, even though I mean, it's like I. But I needed more. I mean, I have too much of an ego. I was like performing stuff live, and I waited way too late in my life, and so I write my stuff not until like nineteen, um, like two thousand five, when I did my first record. You know, I should have been writing when I was, you know, twenty years before that, because that's really that's really the most rewarding feeling ever. As you probably know, having your own CDs out and getting them finished, and mm-hmm. knowing that they get kind of accepted out there. That's. Do you feel that being at the school or any school, not just MI, or being a teacher, sometimes it's a, a comfortable. It, it it it's something to fall on to where you don't really want you. I'm trying to how how can well, you I get comfortable this? in doing you that and don't pursue the stuff that you really. I've else. seen that happen. I can I can name some names yeah. that you know too yeah. that I won't. But I've seen it happen. There's a lot of teachers like that. Sure, you get you get, you get comfortable paying the rent, you know, mm-hmm. and with the certain amount of hours you have kind of like down at the school and you're kind of a fixed income there and you're teaching. You become the guy, the teacher at school, and and. It takes up a lot of your time. You know, the, th- the thing I didn't like about teaching in school is if I would teach private lessons like eight hours a day, mm-hmm. I mean, the last thing I wanted to do when I got out of school was play more guitar. Mm-hmm. And I found out it, it took away from me doing my own thing and really playing what I wanted to play. You know, having, because I would, 
at the time I was, now I do open counseling, but I, I sit in a big room now and just kind of do whatever I want to do. I can play whatever I want to play. But back then I really had to stick to the curriculum and teach them the cage positions and all the yeah. arpeggios and this and that. And that was just so, I mean, I was drinking like 30 cups of coffee a day just to stay awake and I was just kind of hating it, you know? And so when I cut my hours back on there and started doing real work outside of school, I was a much happier guy. So it, it all depends, I guess, on what level you're teaching at and how much you're doing. I, I mean, now the way I look at it, it it's helped me kind of, um, it gives me a stronger foundation of what I know about music. The fact that I can, um, uh, you know, sit in a master class in Japan and try to explain how to practice or how modes work. You know, it, it kind of reinforces your own fundamental understanding of guitar. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of good therapy for yourself. It's just a good... Yeah, um, you learn more by teaching. Even yeah, you kind of go, well, what do I really know? How would I explain this? And do I really understand this? And it kind of makes you figure things out in a way. Because um, there's, there's a lot of great players who can't really teach. Mm -hmm. I know, sure. uh, you know, um, okay, boo, okay. <laughs> um, you want me to ask you a question too? Yeah, really? the Gino Vanelli gig how did that come out uh, Jimmy that... Haslip was a friend yeah. of mine bass player from the Yellow Jackets and he had recommended me the year before and I couldn't do it because I was playing with Bobby Caldwell I think at the time or I was maybe I was doing a Randy Crawford gig or something but uh, Gino had heard of me and then he just he needed a guitar player a year later I guess he had gone through a few people and he called me and I went up he had me learn some stuff we talked on the phone we got along Gino's a interesting guy we, we talked on the phone he had a good sense of humor and we, we seemed to hit it off um, I learned all the stuff and flew up there and, and had a, a good week of audition rehearsal type things with him. And so it, that's how I got that. Um, Gino's an interesting guy. You know, he's an he's a incredibly great musician. And I wish he was a lot more famous than he is because he's kind of only known to my generation or, you know, in Canada he's really famous. And, but he's a um, super talented guy. I mean, he mm -hmm. sits down and kind of goes into this little trance and starts writing stuff on piano and you kind of go, or on guitar. And he's, you know, comes up with, he's just great stuff. You know, he's probably, he's very particular and very picky. So that's, that might be his, he might be his own worst enemy in that respect, in that he he tries to perfect everything. And I, I wish he would, I wish he'd have like a John Leventhal or somebody produce him or somebody mm -hmm. else take and say, no, it's great, loose well, like it is. But doesn't his brother have some sort of creative input? Or oh, yeah, he had three brothers. Ross, 
Vanelli, who worked sound for us, I guess was does commercials and some TV stuff up here, and the piano player, Joe Vanelli. That's who I'm thinking of. But they yeah. had a falling out. Actually, oh. I was with Gina for three years. I never met Joe once. Wow. Because they, I don't know what it was, if it was artistic or if it was personal. You know, families are. Families can be kind of, um, just because you're the same blood doesn't mean you're always a whole lot alike. Well, like the Black Crows or like, uh, you know, Oasis. I mean, those are some pretty brutal uh, brother brotherhood partnerships. Yeah, we, yeah we have seven kids in my family, so I just know, you know, and I'm pretty close to a few of them, you know, my sister in New Orleans, yeah. and there's some other ones I haven't talked to in years just because this, we're just different oh, I didn't people. know that. Wow, I just want to yeah, say. My brother who's a, conducts a symphony in Alabama. Nice. Montgomery Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, he's a, but we haven't, we had some personal things happen in the family that we just don't, uh, but I know Joe is a great, uh, engineer and great writer i think he did a lot of soundtrack stuff but gino's an awesome talent i heard you guys in new orleans i remember you got me we, we hung out and i got actually met gino and and the band sounded killer i remember that mm. when was that? that was about 10 years ago probably. yeah that was a great band randy yeah. porter on keyboards yeah. great keyboard player and reinhardt melts the only person left is reinhardt they're all all portland guys now well you were going to tell me something about a solo you did on one of the <laughs> you want to tell that story now and i can yeah well uh where did I first hit it? There's actually an old Statler Brothers record where it's a parody of like Sunday morning group in a church, <laughs> and it's it's called Take Off Guitars. It's like, oh, boy, take Off Guitar. I can't remember exactly, but it's like it's like everything's a little bit out of tune, out of time. Uh -huh. So it's like a. Uh, I'm remember. <laughs> Every time you go, you can slow down. You go. <laughs> you slow down. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we had a guitar player named Jim Hutchinson. This one band in Montgomery, Alabama, and he used to um, he used to be able to do that really well. He kind of go, like, oh yeah, you know, playing everything. He's a little bit out of tune, oh, out yeah. of time, but it was beautiful just because it was so bad. And uh, you know, I used to do that with uh, with you know, blues stuff, like you know. <laughs> Actually, so, it sounds authentic. <laughs> I used to do it with uh, Bobby Caldwell. The band would be cracking. I mean, not live. I would never do that shit live. But like in rehearsal or whatever, and, and the band would be cracking up, you know. And Bobby used to hate it. Bobby would go, God damn it, Alan, cut that out. He'd get really, <laughs> literally pissed off. And then, but Gino loved it. I'd do it. He would just start laughing like a little kid who's being tickled, you know. So um, when we recorded, I recorded two CDs with him. And one of them, we did a remake of a lot of the old his old hits and one was was the great brother to brother solo at yep. Carlos Rios play that we all know so uh, uh, I recorded it here at my house and I sent him the track and the first thing I did was like a whole parody of it where it was like oh. you know, all out of tune <laughs> that's and pretty I, ballsy man. yeah well exactly and, they, and the engineer called me about two hours later and said that they, Gino was still like lying on the floor laughing because oh, it was yeah I'll play it for you it's pretty awesome stuff
But then I ended up doing a serious track for him. It was a, it was a, it was really fun. A lot of hardcore changes to play over, you know. What was the, what was the? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, brother you, to brother, you did yeah. Brother to brother. Yeah, you and it had changes it. like, yeah. Yeah. changes Those like are, that, like the yeah. real modal and half steps and stuff. And it's like, you know, you'd, I would always hear saxophone players play so nicely of that. For guitar, it always seemed to be. Those are always the hard ones, you know. Yeah. Two fives were, two fives are what got me a lot of gigs out of MI, you know. But is and I could always handle those, and even like get a lot of like uh, standards I can see yeah. and navigate myself around. But when I, some of those songs they have like the weird half step mm -hmm. stuff, and you, know, you modally you hear, I've analyzed like Michael Brecker was one of my favorite guys to transcribe, and as he should be, everybody's favorite guy to transcribe. But um, you know and. I, I, I bottom line is I, I'd end up just like singing a melody I, if I couldn't figure out what scale it was yeah. I'm just gonna sing a melody but Gino, anyway Gino's music had uh, posed a lot of challenges that way for guitar uh, so I had like you know three or four good solos worked out for because I didn't want to be in front of 10,000 people and improvise and you know stand there yeah you gotta have everything. a few things to lay on of course, nothing yeah. wrong with that Gino's awesome, you know. He's. I just wish he was. I wish you know his the whole story. He told me the whole story about him kind of falling out of favor with Clive Davis back in the day, and he couldn't get out of his contract with him. So that's why no, he kind of dropped off the edge of the world there for a minute, and nobody heard from Gino until years later. And yeah, it was a big mess, and he had to buy himself out of the contract. And yeah, I. But you know, he's he's an incredible singer still. He's got to be in his late sixties, and he's all the songs are in mm -hmm. the same original keys and he sings all the high notes and wow. you know he takes care of himself he doesn't drink or smoke and he does yoga and he drinks tea and won't talk to anybody loud for a couple of days before mm -hmm. the shows you know that kind of stuff he's real disciplined great writer great writer and amazingly good drummer and guitar player too wow you know he's just one of those guys god dang it that's cool. That was um, that was an exercise. Um, here, play this. This is cool. Um, yeah. Now, um, move it up a minor third. Uh, Another minor third. Let's see. Yeah, it sounds really nice with its harmony like this. And I was just, How are you figuring that? Well, but I do like this. Oh, uh, yeah, that makes more sense. I see. Yeah, then. 
Yeah, I had, a, I had one song on one of my records years ago. I did that, but it was an exercise at first, and I would do it in harmony. So if you play, um, it took me a you, second to get that. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, yeah, they're all minor thirds. So it's like uh, add nine's going. <laughs> and I yeah. remember I'd written this song that goes. It's really fast. It goes like a. Something like that, and Bill's in harmony. So the other part is going. I call monkeys and slides is all that record. And so I went to Japan. This guy was going to play with me, and he had been, he had been trying to learn it like. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> trying to play laterally up the fretboard, and I felt so sorry for him. I said, "Oh, dude, I should have told you. I should have written you or something, you know, because he probably spent like two months working on <laughs> trying to do it. You try to just jump up a minor third on one string. It's really freaking hard. That's hard. <laughs> and I was just like, just. Well, the other way is sort of hard too when you don't. Well, it's easier. If I had a few minutes to put it together. That's really great. But, then, but here, play together. Here's where it's pretty. When it gets. Ooh. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that that was the idea that I was going for, and it was just, you know, it was probably drug induced at some point. But uh, once again, that's a that's a that's a. I pick a lot with my fingers, you know, uh-huh. like, uh, and you know, even like getting people ask me what my chord voices are, and they're really I don't have any fancy chord voices. I just pick the right notes out of them, you know, like. Um, yeah. By doing that, it makes one simple minor chord sound so much more. Yeah. It's almost like what you leave out is why it sounds. More space. That's yeah, fun. Double track that one with a lot of like slide and ambient stuff with using that strange, the palm pedal guitar oh, with yeah, all the slidey stuff. That's a real fun guitar. You ever seen one of those? Nope. The palm pedal. Actually, that's. We're gonna, we're gonna put it. Let me show you what it does. Sure. Let me check. It's kind of cool. Um, I, I think Dusendorf. Is that the name of the company? Dusenberg. Dusenberg. Isn't that that's from Harry Potter? Dusenberg uh, makes um one but it, this one feels better this one feels like a harley davidson to me you know i mean it's like this, L- it's lsl so oh. lsl yeah this is one of lance's guitars lsl does mostly relic copies of like strats and telecasters but this one he made for me actually it has my daughter's name in it 
Oh, yeah. And the headstock, you, he did it really lightly, so it only kind of comes out in certain light. Wow, <laughs> man, I would have never known. That thing looks like it's from the late 60s or 70s. Yeah, I had him copy my, I had a uh, 1960 uh, uh, Les Paul special. Oh, yeah. And I had him copy it exactly. And then we put this one pickup in, and I put this palm pedal on it. Um, so I'm tuned in standard, but you can you could always play around tunings to make it more, make it interesting. Um, but because I'm kind of a Homer Simpson, I whenever I tune a guitar to open tune it, I was like, I'll kind of get it for a second, and then I'll just go back to a standard tuning lick and, and blow it. I, I can never can seem to wrap my head around it too long. So I keep it um, in standard, but you can get stuff like... You can get those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of nice pedal steel. So, um, yeah, this is I lay because I can't play keyboards. I end up layering a lot of guitars on my tracks. I mean, if you ever heard any of my records, they have like five guitar parts, and it all sounded fine to me because I grew up listening to Led Zeppelin, you know. So mm -hmm. there's always like layered. I slide like um, you know, just doing like lower ambient. Even if it's way in the background with some reverb, was. Mm -hmm. Textures um, and things. I got that from you know from you know, probably Little Feet and Chris, this, Chris Whitley and stuff. So the B string is yeah. is going up a, up you a can, second. Is that you uh, can you can adjust it to wherever you want to to do a half step. This one goes up a, a, a whole step. Yeah. And then the uh, I have the G string also going up all steps. So I can get those. It's kind of fun, huh? Yeah. But you can um if you and if you know if you know your fretboard pretty well I mean if somebody needs a, like an add nine chord or a major nine chord you can I can, I know my theory well enough to know where those slash chords would be yeah get, like if you, you played A to, to go there you know to play yeah. like an E triad over uh, the A but um that's a real great thing and I wish they still made these I mean you can find them I found this one off of eBay off of another guitar about like a four hundred dollar oh, Telecaster okay. and took it off of that. Because um, they only made them back like in the Bigsby, huh? 60s and 70s. I, yeah, every time I go to the NAMM show every year and I, I say, man, please build the palm pedals again because they're cool things. I guess it's the same thing as a B bender, yeah. yeah, but it's just easier to use. It's there, yeah. And um, some of them, they, you, can, you can actually put six levers on it. Um, I think there was a Nashville to. guitar player named Phil Baugh. Ba i pronounce his name I think wrong, you're right. 70s. I mean, and he, who had like a lot of them, he right? He had like, I, he might have invented something with pedals or I don't know, it was something It looked like that. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a fun, it's a fun, it's a great thing to do uh, if, you, if you're a guitar player and you just want to create some pads in the back. And I, I've always loved, I mean, maybe it's because I grew up in Alabama, but pedal steel yeah. is always, I mean, it's even a beautiful back, sound. even back to like the Sneaky Pete stuff, I mean, and, and I know the country stuff, um, is the sound of steel is awesome.
So I've always loved, I mean, growing up in high school in Alabama, you, know, you have to play some slide guitar. Everyone does. I mean, I mean, I see Bill Hines, who's a phenomenal guitar player, played with a guy named, uh, what's it, Pete? Something, um, something Thorn. He used to travel around like a little feet, like a roadhouse blues mm. rock band. I'm spacing out on his first name. But my friend Bill Hines is a left-handed guitar player. Everybody used to think we were brothers because it's spelled mm. the same way. We both played in the best bands in Alabama at the time. Mm. He played with the, he married one of the Forrester sisters, I think, mm. who they were from okay. Nashville. And now he was a big Nash. He did a lot of sessions in Nashville for several years there. He's kind of retired and he's kind of gotten off the road. But um, boy, he's now he's a slide guitar player. You know, that's mm. a guy. And there was a guy named Billy Earl McClellan. I don't know if any of you are listening, but he was a big session player in Nashville and Muscle Shoals for a while from Auburn, Alabama. At least from Lynette, Georgia. Um, but I knew him from Auburn. And when I was like 14 years old, I used to sneak into this little club in Auburn. And first time I ever heard like Almond Brothers played, you know, like a real Les Paul played through a Marshall stack. Yeah. And it just blew me away. And he was awesome. He, he died several years ago, but he was, you can, I think there's probably still things with him online. He was a great singer, great writer, great player, great guy. And, um, yeah, and you know, growing up in Alabama, I saw the Allman Brothers right after Dwayne died, like a, you know, like months after Dwayne had died, when they still had a micro microphone set up for him, and Bertie Oakley was still wow. with him. Dicky Betts was um, just playing great then, you know, the gold top through Marshall stack, and I actually played that guitar last year, and I was in Germany at this music store. The they had Dicky Betts's uh, gold top that he had refinished at some point, but they were selling it over there, and I got to go upstairs, and they opened the vault. Played the first guitar I ever heard. First electric guitar. Nice. Yeah, guitar. That's, yeah, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool. I'm thinking about those chord changes. The, those those, no, are those changes. That same uh, uh, like street life, right? Street life. I, we used to do that with Boss Gags, and it was the same thing. And Boss had a lot of things like. You know, JoJo and all that. It had all those kind oh, of yeah. formal, It must have been a... Where you, I mean, it's almost like you kind of give up trying to analyze it, what it is, because it's like, it, sometimes it's, I don't know. I think it's like, um, there's exceptions to every rule I found in everything musically, whether, the, you know, uh, tritone substitution or it's this or that. And it's like, there's always an exception. There's always one example yeah. you can find where that doesn't really work here. No, you know? and you like, can play wrong. It should be Dorian, but it's wrong. not. Like you know? Schofield would do that, where he'll play pentatonic, like, you know, down, like. A half step away? <laughs> Whatever. He'll go a half step, yeah, a whole goes, step down, and then, then go into, you know, it's like, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's a, that's a thing when I, think about people who played outside kind of stuff and it still worked and I always wondered why how, how does that possibly work usually it's because their time is so damn good you know mm -hmm. it's like a freight train coming along that you know they, they're so committed to it it's just like it's gonna work yeah you know and they just kind of do it and there's I there's one record that I a band I had called Wonderland Park that's like a trio thing I did yeah. and we just kind of camped out in my friend's house and wrote a bunch of quirky stuff and there's one solo in that one of those songs where I just kind of like I kind of went off like I think I made a huge mistake and I like landed on a, I don't know like a major seven on a dominant seven chord mm -hmm. something that just shouldn't be right but I just kept repeating it in the middle of the solo and it ended up being like the favorite part of people who listened I said that's the coolest part of the song and I remember at the funny, time huh? going I suck you know but you know in the moment you know you you I learned a long time ago not to freeze up and run away just to kind of like embrace it and kind of, kind what, of make what's it the work. name of that tune I think it's the title cut just get in okay I have that record it's the one there's like a
four tunes, but didn't he used to do like a blues with the these chords? That would be the one. That kind of thing. It sounds like something, but it's not right. inside story, right? That just sounds like LA to me. It sounds like whenever I hear eleven chords, of course, it, it sounds, sounds like LA. Like LA right? It sounds like uh, you know. I don't you know, know, that was the first time I ever heard. I saw Robin actually was uh, with George Harrison. Oh wow! Dark you Horse, saw that Dark Horse tour in yeah. Atlanta, Georgia, seventy-one or seventy-two. You know, we all piled in my dad's Impala and, and went up there and he paid like six fifty to see the concert or something crazy like that. And it was at the Omni, and I remember who the hell is that guitar player? Because I was just starting to get in the guitar. I wasn't. I didn't start till I was like seventeen years old, but. I remember seeing him, you know, it's like a little skinny guy with a big 335. You know, I didn't know what the hell it was. But I was, just proximity-wise, I was just right in front of amp. you know, how amps are so yeah. directional. And he just blew me away. And I, of course, they had flyers then, you know, and there's a picture of him and who he was. And so I, of course, every record at that that had his name on it, I went and bought, of course. Um, that was like the LA Express with Tom Scott. And yeah. I think John Guerin might have been playing drums. I don't know. Oh. Great fan. Yeah. How about, um, what else can we do? Like, um, like Sly and the Family Stone? Yeah, what it was. What's the turn around? F sharp. Oh, I see what you're saying. I think that's a little chromatic one thing. Thank you. 
but not like MIA stuff to use, right? <laughs> so you're playing, you're playing nice altered stuff. You're putting all that MI knowledge MI. to use. <laughs> This other band called the Cookies I play with with uh, Bobby Watson and Donald Barrett and uh, Max Ann Lewis sings and it's you do those it's kind funky of tunes. man it's yeah. just so much fun weakness I mean Bobby Bobby you know he's um, don't ask him to retain you know he won't re he always forgets bridges and stuff for like and he can't read really but his groove is just so deep you know he played on Nothing from Nothing Leaves Nothing by oh, Billy Preston wow. he played on Rock with You the Michael Jackson hit he put all that Rufus stuff wow. that was Bobby Watson and he's just a he's a special guy you know. He just has, you know, his strength is his groove for sure. When we play, man, that song, we just, we take it someplace else. Yeah, we just, that's a gig you missed, missed the other night. That would have been. Oh, shit, I wish I would have Yeah, it was around. It was really great, fun. Uh, a new old club in town. I mean, it's called Vibrato. Herb Alpert owns this club, and it's. um. Man, Herb Alpert's still, still around? I think he's still around. Wow. His little voice comes on at the club, you know, before saying, hey, everybody, this is Herb Alpert. Um, so I think he's in his 80s. I think he's still around. Yeah. But the club is called Vibrato, and it's up in Beverly Hills area, up here where I live, um, over near Beverly Glen. So it's kind of swanky, it's expensive, but it's laid out. It reminds me of the clubs in Japan, really, you know. Uh, like Billboard Aesthetics are something. gorgeous. Yeah, but it's even like, a, like they have a, a, the Cotton Club. Yeah. It's just really laid out beautifully. I mean, uh, they have great food. They treat the band great. The sound system is awesome. Mm -hmm. There's nothing else in Los Angeles that I know is like that. I mean, there's... It's funny. LA is a weird place. Away, it's like there's not like in New Orleans. There's like a strip of blocks, of block after block of like clubs, right? We can go to an area and kind of walk yeah. to a few different places. Or in LA, there's like you know you go to one club, you want to go to another one. It's a half hour drive. Yeah, you know, there's really not one area where there's like a several like a music hang like that, which is crazy with a town as big as Los Angeles. Oh yeah. But there's like the place you play. What's the name of the place you played? Oh, last night, 1881 okay. Pasadena. Yeah. That's kind of a new place. I mean, it's not, I don't think it's been there that long. I mean, long. that place is, it's yeah. like a, it was like some New Orleans dive bar. Right. So, but it's a scene, man. It was a nice, cool little spot. Yeah, Joel's been doing his thing up there. He says he's threatening to get me in there at some point. And then the Catalina Bar and Grill, which moved around the corner from where it used to be. And now it's kind of like um, 
I don't know. I don't think it's a really great venue. I mean, to me, it's not. It's not as intimate. You don't feel like you're a part of the show. I don't know. The clubs in Japan are just so you know. It's like they're going to a great restaurant. Everything's yeah. vibey and it's got and the sound systems. It vibrato is awesome. Big Potato has a great sound system. Yeah. But once again, it's just like one little square room about as big as my apartment, right? Remember the remember the night we went to Lava Lee to hear Scott? And, uh, yeah, Lando was there like and Lando, his wife. Yeah, yeah, we were hanging out. That was fun. That place is gone, right? Way gone, yeah. And, places, and there's a place called Lake Cafe. Remember Lake Cafe? I remember it, yeah. That was up in the valley? I think I, yeah, I think up I a flight of stairs, that's gone. Um, there's Shelley's Manhole and Dante's. I think Baked Potatoes is like the only one that's really left from the It's amazing, the this, this scene, uh, how many great, great players are in Los Angeles, and there's like not a lot of places to play. Same in New I York, know. man. There's like 55 Bar, and there's a couple others where, you, you know, unless you're doing straight-ahead jazz. You, right. And 22 years old, wearing a suit. You know, and whenever I see, play. whenever I see like, you know, YouTube of these new phenomenal guitar players playing like straight-ahead stuff, it's always like in a restaurant someplace. You can yeah. hear the blenders going off, and it's like... I mean, uh, I guess there's the Iridium. That's a pretty... Is that yeah, new? Iridium, but Iridium's more of a bigger... That's like a d dinner club oh, okay. kind of thing. Yeah, that's a cool place. I've played yeah. there. Um, yeah. yeah, it's funny. I don't... It, you know, you go over to... You go over to Japan, there's like the club... I don't know. It's... Yeah, you're right. I mean, you, in America, you would think they'd be taking care of the musicians a little bit more. <laughs> they just, you know, they would be a little bit more of a... It doesn't seem like it gets the respect... That you get in other countries, you know. I guess it's it, way it the doesn't you know you have to have an audience for things, you know. Unfortunately, I, I don't know. talk about your your new record man i know you're you played me some tracks it's killing and uh you want to talk a little bit about um, the uh you know how it came to be and got any titles or yeah well i'm still searching on titles it kind of have like you know you know like yesterday's underwear and whatever you know, you know <laughs> old so old I had na names i just happened to 
whatever was happening in that moment at the time when I wrote the song, I, it kind of stuck on some of them, but um, we're going to fix that. Well, this CD, I mean, I have, I was playing the baked potato about a year ago, and um, this guy came in uh, who, who would always reserve a seat with his buddies at this one table, and I started to recognize him, you know, like we play there once a month, baked potato, and he came up one night, he said, hey, Alan, look, I'm a big fan, if I can ever help with your, you make a record, um, or if you ever want to see LeBron James, let me know. You know, Staples Center. So I said, "What?" I thought it was kind of a weird thing. I just kind of crammed his his card in my pocket, and the next day, I, um, I googled this this guy, and he was the a, uh, CEO of AEG, which is a big promotional, the best like you know Live Nation right. thing. So he's a he's a guitar nut, you know, but he's also he made a decision years ago to that he wasn't going to try to you know uh, struggle and be a musician, an artist. He figured he'd go the business route, and he did it. Quite well. He owned the. He started the Beverly Theater here in Los Angeles back in the seventies or eighties. He borrowed a bunch of money from friends and started that. He booked everything at Madison Square Garden for ten years. Um, and he's just. Um, he's a. He's got a lot of money, and he's got. And he's. A, but he's a down-to-earth guy, and he collects vintage guitars, and he loves the way I play. He loves my old other CDs. So he said, "Look, let's make a record." So he's kind of, kind of paying bankrolling everything himself mm -hmm. out of his pocket, and you know he's. He's not like uh, he's not dictating like what I should play or anything. I, mm -hmm. He said, "Alan, tell me if I'm talking too much." I said, "No, as long as you don't tell me there's too much cowbell or something like that." You know? He's basically executive producer. That's what he's that's executive what producer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he makes some comments sometimes, but he's like, you know, he enabled me to go. I had I always have songs kind of in the works, you know, and I had some new ideas I thought were pretty strong, and um, uh, so he listened to the demos and he liked them, and so he booked the East West Studios. We got. The great J.J. Blair to come in there, um, engineer, mic up everything, and um, brought Lenny Castro in, Jimmy Johnson. My band is Travis Carlton, Larry Carlton's son on bass, mm -hmm. uh, and Donald Barrett and Matt Rohde. My friend Rogerio Jardim sings. So, yeah, so it's coming together great. I'm just waiting for the, the guy who I want to mix the CD. His name is Rich Breen, who did the Yellow Jackets and Billy Childs. And he had been working with Lyle Mays right before Lyle Mays passed mm -hmm. away. So his... His time was kind of consumed with all that stuff at the time, so I'm getting in and starting on Monday. We're going to finish oh, the nice. record. So yeah. um, we've already kind of done about five songs, kind of, but we're still we haven't had a chance to touch them up. You know, we just did it one day, and so we're hopefully going to finish it this next week. And Jay, because he has the wherewithal, he's going to try to push the CD a lot. He's going to put ads in all the magazines and try to get me out there. But it's 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 different. This my records in the past. I I mean I never. I never spent never spent a lot of time uh, on making solos, you know, burning. I kind of figure, and I kind of it's kind of the way I record. When I record a solo, I'll just turn it on. I'll record, and I'll, I'll get the general contour of the solo because I figure that the first instinct is usually right, you know, as far as like at least knowing where the dynamics are, where you back off, where you kind of lay in, where you shred, you know. And in the past, I'd kind of let it, let it kind of lie where it was and kind of leave it up to you know that was the zeitgeist. That was the that was the moment in time when it was that's the way it was supposed to be. And I might pass a few small things, but this one I really spent time and made sure every solo was really. Mm -hmm. Even though I, you know, I mean, first take a couple of the solos were first take through, which I'm proud of those. Uh, but the other couple of the other ones, I really spent some time and made sure they were really super burning, you know, without sounding too contrived. So, uh, yeah, we're taking our time. We're making sure this one really counts, and it's going to sound. I know it'll sound better than all my other records sonically. It already sounds great. Just what you pulled up there. It's not even a mix, and it's yeah. This is just my stuff here at home. Yeah, that's like a mix. That's like temp, you know, comp of the uh, drums. Now you played me something in New. Or the tune you just played me, you played me 
when you came to my studio in New Orleans or, or a few months ago and you said that, uh, was it Joe Bonamassa lent you one of his uh, Dumble amps? Well, J.J. Blair, who engineered this of his good friends, has done Joe, uh, Joe's records. And mm -hmm. um, he asked Joe, uh, and I kind of know Jessica. You see, we see each other around town. Let's give him a yeah. guitar center vintage room. So I kinda, he kind of knows who I am. I kind of know, I, of course, I know who he is. He's done a really great job of, you know, branding the name Bonamassa, of course, as we all know. He's a great player, but he's friends with JJ. So he said, yeah, let Alan use the Dumble for the session. So yeah, I said, sure. And actually when I recorded at that studio, I was more or less kind of just conducting everybody. I really wasn't paying real close attention to what I was playing because I was just trying to make sure yeah, that I got all the parts yeah, down. To but we ended up keeping a lot of the, lot of the tracks mm -hmm. and the Dumble sounded awesome, of mm -hmm. course. I, I never really realized how good they could sound until I realized how I good they were. I never had the opportunity to realize. Not many people have, yeah. yeah. It, it's amazing how well it just trans, something about the way it translates on tape. I mean, when you hear it back, it's just like, wow, I can hear every, it's this really articulate sounding amplifier. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't use it for many of my, I'll play you another song in a minute that I recorded that um, the solo was first take through on that amp. Uh, it's, it sounds pretty awesome. Uh, but yeah, they're kind of special amps. I mean, I don't know. To me, it did one thing really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, really well, better than anything. You know, that was, was kind it, of was crunchy. Was it hundred thousand dollars? Well, worth it. <laughs> we'll yeah, I guess it depends on how much you got in the bank. Your equipment here, these amp amplifiers sound great, man. This this yeah. one is a, an old. I guess I'm playing through this old deluxe reverb. Yeah, it originally was like an like a '69 or '70. I don't know or '71 mm -hmm. deluxe, but it's been rebuilt. Uh, Dave Friedman. Um, oh yeah. At uh, What's this place called now? It used to be called. He has, makes Friedman amps, of course, but he works at a place called Tone Merchant. Oh, is that the, okay? Somebody told me to check that place out. He yeah. built my first pedal board for me years ago. He's awesome. He's yeah. been a good friend. He's just totally yeah. everything he does. He just he knows what he's doing. And I have an old Gibson Invader yeah. over there with one twelve and an eight inch. Smell that thing. The cloth wire <laughs> and the two is cool. Isn't that great? Yeah. It's like having, it's like my own little room, uh, aromatherapy. You know, that like amp beyond. Yeah. I don't know if it was the tubes or the cloth or what it is. And that's a Bob Burt made me a bunch of cabinets. I have a lot of his stuff around. Um, mm. He makes really great stuff. And the red plate guys, which that unfortunately they're great. like out of business. Um, Man, that amp sounds really good. It sounds really great. It's got, it, they, you know, like everybody, they were trying to copy the Dumble sound. So there's something about the way the effects loop is, in it, mm -hmm. is integrated into mm -hmm. the overdrive section. Eh. I don't know. I just know it works really good for me when I heard it. I had to have it. And um, mm -hmm. they actually they gave me a couple of those. So yeah, I'm lucky. I'm, if I had more room, I don't have a lot of room up here, as you can see. But it's like, I live like a little Japanese guy. You know, I gotta have everything's gotta be right in the right place, or else it's cluttered. You know? <laughs> if, if I, you know, if I like, if I'm coming in and out of the house and working a lot, the place is like you can barely walk anywhere. But yeah, I love it up here, man. Well, man, I look forward to hearing that record. When it's, uh... I'm excited too. It's going to be called uh, the Good Fight. Because if anybody knows me from my Facebook rants the last few years, I've, I'm kind of outspoken critic of some things that go on politically. Oh, um, okay. I'm not on Facebook, so I I don't have a personal. Good for account, you. So I don't... Well, me and Leland Sklar have <laughs> been banned several times. Oh, really? And actually, I don't use profanity ever. I just you know sometimes when you copy a meme from a, a place that's been no. uh, blacklisted, they, they'll black, they'll cut you off for a week. And I posted something about, I just said something like, I don't, I didn't use any curse words, but they they said that it was just classified under hate speech. So I don't mm. know what that's about. But anyway, the way I look at it, I'm just a kind of a uh, part of the resistance. 
<laughs> in this day and age. Uh, it's a weird world we live in. And I, I'm just outspoken. My mother was the same way. When I was growing up in Alabama, we used to go into Walmart there, and she'd get in arguments with the cashier because she was wearing a Obama sticker or a, you know something liberal. You know, she'd get my, my mom would like mm. they'd get in a big argument. I said, "Mom, can we go?" <laughs> but I find I'm kind of the same way. I kind of feel uh, something a little bit disturbing about what's happening in America right now. But that's that's another podcast. But this whole, but the record's called uh, Good Fight, and that's kind of what it's that's where the names came from anyway. But I have like a whole string section on a couple songs. Um, pedal steel. Uh, Rich Hinman is playing some pedal steel on it. I got your friend um, Pat, Pat Bergeson. Pat Bergeson, yeah. plays some killer He's harmonica. Great. Did I He's send so, it to you? Not yet, but you, you you asked me for his number, and you said, man, I never heard back from Pat. Yeah, we got Pat's in touch, and he's great. He's a, he was a guest on Riff Raff, too. I heard that. Check yeah. that out. He's a fascinating. He's a great oh, guitar he's, player. Man, he's a great guitar player. You know, it's a whole other world. I, my students kind of keep me. They go, hey, Alan, you need to be doing all these videos every day, like one-minute videos with the aesthetic right, and you need to go to this website, and you need to pay them for a future. I go, what? And it's like a, it's like you can go to these websites and pay them like you know ten dollars, and then they'll spit out your stuff to like a whole new demographic all over all over the world. I guess that's what a lot of guys are doing now. now I mean, I I'm glad. I don't you know how you monetize that. I'm or... glad you brought this up because it seems like there's a lot. I touched on this a little bit with Wayne Krantz, but it seems like there's a lot of guys now, and I mean no disrespect at all for people of listening, but it seems like there are guys that they maybe they've never even done quote real gigs they you know they that's just, right this youtube thing is that's that's it and they've been able to monetize it and god bless them man i don't have shit for followers i haven't ever really tried to do that stuff but i i'm wondering like when how much is too much man like well guitar players post every day and it's like i guess the world is so big where it can absorb you know I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of people that would well, love to see videos every day, but... You know, I've never put one video myself of anything live. I mean, those, everything that's up there is like other people have put up there, which is yeah. probably good and bad. I mean, there's probably some crap up there where I played, you know, because, you know, I mean, I'm not the kind of guy who can turn on and just like turn on inspiration or make it or make it sound... I kind of have to be inspired. I have to be the moment. The ear has to sound right. I have to be in... And luckily, I... I've gotten to that place enough where I've been able to make a career doing it. But I remember, this takes me back to when I used to do studio stuff. Uh, and they'd, I'd go into a studio and they'd say, hey, man, can you do that lucrative thing? Or they'd want you to do something that, you, that you're just not. And I just realized at some point that I was not that guy. And um, these days, I mean, teaching at musicians, like musicians, this is where I get kind of a cross-section of all, all young guys who come in um, who have incredible technique. And they have great, I mean, I don't know if they can write songs or if they have that much original to say but it's really um licky and it's really um i don't know what i'm trying to say it's like it's genetically engineered kind of good pops up but without the songs or something like that it's just like, like the they got it no somebody said the other day somebody said it's like a it's like a woody allen joke where he goes uh the way to a woman's heart is through sincerity and honesty and if you can fake that <laughs> and that's what it seems like to me like they've kind of copied all the right movements and the right but it's lacking something to me and that could be maybe it's just because i'm old but yeah it's a whole you new world you think it's because there. they don't uh, interact with other musicians in a garage somewhere that's got to be you know a lot of it of sitting it? in front of a laptop with with a uh, garage band you know or loops or things i mean that's got to be what it is because there's that and that's the beautiful thing when you listen to an old steve winwood record or or beatles or any of that kind of old stuff the there was a 
special place the band gets to just from being with each other and from working off of each other in a track or a composition or whatever that I don't I don't really hear very much these days. So I don't know. It's got to be the the advent of the technology to where we can just be their own player in their own living room and not interact, which is a which is brings us to the coronavirus. Everybody's like walling off. Everybody's in their bubble this week, aren't they? By the time this gets edited and out there, it'll be interesting to see where we are because, you know, it'll be a little while before I finish this one. But in right now, man, it's pure well, panic mode. It's crazy. I mean, it's like, yeah, we've been talking about this some. It's People are stocking up on toilet paper because there's a virus out there. It's not like, I mean, I hope it's not. I mean, it feels like there's, you know, like, like Night of the Living Dead or something. It feels like, you know, everybody's off the streets. Everybody's, yeah. like, walling themselves in their own little rooms and buying. I found I found myself going to the supermarket, and I bought a bunch of steaks and salmon to freeze so I could, you know, eat for them and not have to go outside for the next week. And I'm thinking, why? I mean, I'm pretty healthy, and I don't think even if I caught the damn thing, I would die. But but the media tells us otherwise. The media tells us otherwise, and, you know, the whole world is closed down. Yeah, I almost got there. Almost got to the mountaintop. Nice, Alan. Hey, what are you gonna do for dinner? You have plans? Um, no. You wanna go get some to eat in a minute? Sure, man. I got a good, couple good places we can go. Let's go. Want sushi? Hey, uh, Alan, thank you so much. Yeah, for, man. Sure. For uh, getting together. My pleasure. On a rainy yeah. day, this is a fun thing to a do. A rainy day in L.A. It's just such a rare it's thing. So surreal. But I love having all my windows up and my cats laying around. Yeah. It's a comfortable place Old up here. amps. It's as close to Alabama as I can get without leaving Los Angeles. You're in L.A. Huh? You're, you're Alabama. not in lower Alabama. You're, <laughs> right. in, you're in L.A., L.A. But yeah, I always mm-hmm. joke about that. All right. Well, great. It was good seeing you again, man. It was Thank lots of fun. Too. Likewise. All right, man. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for, if you're still here, hanging in there. I hope you enjoyed that. It was so fun hanging out with Alan. Hit him up on Facebook, Instagram. Hit him up for a Skype lesson. Uh, hit me up on Instagram, Facebook, if you haven't already. Appreciate the followers. Appreciate the kind comments on iTunes, uh, regardless of where you follow Riff Raff. Help spread the word. And take care. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>